has never been and never will be anyone as good and gracious as you. And this day, we once again choose to receive you and to welcome you. Come into our hearts today, Lord Jesus. There is room in our heart for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. You may be seated in his presence today as we prepare to receive the word of the Lord on the second Sunday of Advent. This Advent season, we're doing a, a special series entitled Treasures Discovering the Riches of Advent. And over these weeks of Advent, we're discovering the treasures, the hidden treasures, the riches that are stored in secret places that the Lord has so that we might know that He is indeed the Lord. So we're discovering, as we did last week, the treasures to treasure the last. This morning we're going to be talking about treasuring the least. Next week, treasuring the lost. And finally on Christmas Sunday, treasuring the Lord. I shared with you last week and I want to um, again make my public uh, confession of, of the Lord's speaking into my life a couple, three years ago. And periodically the Lord will will speak to me very, very directly. He often will speak to me in ways that I, I, I believe, you know, one of the things I often pray for folks is that God will speak to them in a language that they will be able to understand. And so the Lord speaks to me in language that I'm able to understand. And, and uh, it's hard to explain how that comes to me, just as it might be hard for you to explain how the Lord comes to you and speaks to your heart. But... He spoke to me very clearly, and it was one of those times where I could feel him sort of metaphorically just sort of taking hold of me and looking me in the eye and speaking very directly. And he said to me, you are to no longer view the people around you as either targets or as tools but as treasures. And it really broke something open in my heart because I think, and maybe I'm not unique in this, but sometimes I think we can look at folks around us and perhaps particularly those of us who know the Lord and those who we look at those who have yet to know the Lord and we can sometimes view them as targets, as people, you know, that, that we're there to, um, you know, that, that they're, they're a target for us to, to sort of focus in on and we, we sort of work at it and work at it and work at it. Or if we're in the church, and particularly I think a besetting vulnerability for anyone in leadership in the church, you can... Uh, begin to view people as tools to 
help accomplish the very good things that need to be accomplished. And so it's very easy to start to look at people around you as in terms of um, not necessarily who they are, but what they can do. And um, I think both are besetting vulnerabilities that we have. And and I believe God is um, inviting us as a congregation to um, move past those ways, which I think, you know, the Bible talks about we no longer look at men through human eyes. You know, we don't, we don't I think sometimes in our humanity we can do that and look at folks as targets or tools. But even our own family, I mean, if we're parents, we can look at our children, we can look at, I mean, there's just, there's so many applications for this. In workplaces, it's, it's many places. But I want to invite us in this Advent season into a discovery of people not as targets or as tools, but truly as treasures. Because I believe that that's how he looks at us. And I believe that that's how he invites us to look at one another. I don't think Jesus looks at us and says, ah, you're a a target or you're a tool. I think when he looks at you, he says, you're my treasure. Last week, we looked at treasuring the last, and I'm not going to re-preach the message, but for those of you that were not with us or those of you that were, just need to be reminded, we're in Matthew, and I invite you to open your Bible to the first book of the New Testament in your pew Bible in front of you. It will be located uh, right at page number 800. I'm sorry, 683. 683. And last week we took a portion of the scripture that I personally have never preached before, and that was the portion of scripture of the genealogy. The genealogy, the first 17 verses of the book of Matthew. And in that particular portion of scripture that that we sometimes skip over, we discovered some important things about the story. First of all, we discovered that it was embedded in there was the story of God's sovereignty. And we, we looked at the fact that history is really his story of creation, covenant, and kingdom. Right there embedded in Verse 1 are some hints of this that we just read right over and miss. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And right there, he gives us some hints. The record of or the account of are very particular words that are also used back in the book of Genesis when introducing the account of the creation and the creation of man. And so immediately the Matthew's readers would have immediately been brought back to the story of creation. So as the story of new creation begins here, in Matthew chapter 1, the very first verse of the, of the New Testament, already we are getting hints and being brought into the story of creation and the new creation. And then when it talks about the son of Abraham, of course, immediately they would have been brought back 
to Genesis 12 and the call of Abram and the story of God's covenant. And when they talked about the... uh, And then when it says the son of David, that would immediately have brought them and elicited a response of understanding, ah, this is the story of the kingdom. And so immediately we have this story arc from creation and covenant and kingdom and we have the hint immediately here in the book of Matthew that we're on to something bigger than what we thought. This is a story of the sovereignty of God. This is really His story and a whole new chapter is beginning to unfold. Then as we went through the the actual genealogy itself, And all of the names there, the three sets of 14, we discovered and saw within there the dream of his kingdom community. First it's conceived, and we see that from Abraham down through David, and then the exile from David all the way through Jehoiada, or Jehoiakim, um, and the time of exile in Babylon, and then from him all the way down to Jesus the Christ when the dream is restored again. This is a year to dream, 2012. Well, I want to tell you and remind you that God has a dream. It's a dream for His people. It was conceived in His heart to bring humanity into community, that eternal community that God lives in as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the importance of the Trinity, is that God is in community and invites us to come into community with Him. That's His dream. But we get exiled through our brokenness because all of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're exiled from Him. But He sent Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, in order for the purpose of restoring us back into community with Him. So this is the story of God's people. Finally, this is the story of God's It's the story of God's mercy. Embedded right here in the genealogy are all of the irregular and unlikely people. And we're going to talk about that a bit more this morning, so I won't go into that in depth right now. But the irregular, I mean, you know, all all of that is a story of the mercy of God who uses ordinary human beings like you and me to continue His purposes in our lives. And the invitation this Advent is the invitation of the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the last that He invites us to, and of course He tells that in the context of the the Good Samaritan story, the the context is that we are called to love our neighbor both near and far. The last that we would think of to love, and that might actually be to actually begin by loving yourself. The one that you have rejected in your own heart and spirit, but that the Lord would say to you this Advent, treasure. You are a treasure.
You are a treasure. Did you know that? You're a treasure. It's really true. You're a treasure. You're a treasure, Bruce. Maura, you're a treasure. Concepcion, you're a treasure. He treasures you. He treasures you. All right, this morning, we're going to continue this discovering the riches of Advent by looking at treasuring the lease. And we're going to just continue with our story in Matthew. So if you have your Bible, come with me to verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, last week, Jeanette gave us a bit of the story of Joseph and the three dreams he received and, and how he was obedient to those dreams and how grateful we are that he was because otherwise we wouldn't be here if he hadn't been. So, um, but I want to kind of come behind for a moment because throughout the stories, and, and these are so familiar to us, the story of Christmas is one of those things that, that, um, that we know so well that sometimes we forget some of the significance, and some of the significance of what's going on is sort of veiled and hidden to us. And so we have to um, actually pay attention carefully to sort of pull that veil aside to look a bit more deeply and see what's really going on. And so we have some hints right here in in the book of Matthew, and those hints are found as well in the Gospel of Luke as he records the, the birth of Jesus. And we're not going to go there and read all of those scriptures this morning. I just want to stay present here in the Gospel of Matthew. But I want to remind you of some familiar facts, but they give us some insight into this whole concept this morning of treasuring the least. I want to look again for us at the story of what one writer calls the upside-down kingdom. The upside-down kingdom. Because it's going to give us some insight into this treasuring the lease. It's going to help us, I think. So let me just take you in and remind you of a few facts that you know, but let me press home some reality around those facts, just so that that they're kind of weighing upon us as we're considering this concept of treasuring the least today. 
the story of the upside-down kingdom. I want to think you to think with me for a moment. If you were coming as king, rightful heir of all of the earth, the ruler forever and ever, king of kings, lord of lords, how would you choose to enter the world? How would you do it? How would I do it? If we're really honest, okay? Now we know how the story goes. But pull yourself back for a moment and think about if you didn't know this story, how would you choose to come as king? Well, let's look at how he did because it gives us some insight into what is in God's heart. Because John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. So how did he send him? Well, he sent him to a barn. He sent him to a barn. Now again, as Jeanette reminded us last week, I mean, Joseph was doing the best that he could for his family. And there wasn't, you know, because everybody was coming and the, and the census was being taken and so, you know, the, the, the inns were all crowded and there was really no place to stay with relatives. Everybody was... Everybody was, you know, their doors were filled to the max. But I mean, this is the king of the universe. And he's coming, and he's born in a barn. Now, how many of you like the State Fair? I like the State Fair. Okay, anybody like the State Fair? I love the State Fair, okay? It's one of those things that I love to do. Once a year, go to the State Fair, and we always start out in the cattle barn. I love going and look at the... You know, I mean, it's just... It's a great thing, all right? But how many of you know when you're in the cattle barn and the horse barn, you're kind of paying attention, right? You're looking where you're walking. You're keeping an eye on stuff. There's that wonderful pungent aroma, right? King of the universe. being laid in a feeding trough where feed and oral bodily fluids from cattle, some saliva, some spit, the king of the universe. Born in a barn. Now we, you know, we got it all nice and gussied up, cleansed and sanitized. It wasn't cleansed and sanitized. I don't think they had Purell. No Lysol. Born in Bethlehem. Now what's that about? I mean, if you're going to be born, you might as well be born somewhere where, you know, there's a little bit of cachet for being born there. You know, I'm from, I still like to say I'm from Chicago. There's a certain, you know, right? From Chicago. Someplace significant, important, right? City of big shoulders, all right? You want to be known as being from somewhere. You ever meet people from outstate? Minnesota, you know, and then they have to start naming the towns that they're somewhere near. Okay? That's what it would be like 
being born in Bethlehem. You gotta, you know, you gotta give a bunch of reference points to try to get people even to discover where on earth you're at. I mean, it's just a sleepy-eyed shepherd town. There ain't much going on in Bethlehem. Born to Mary and Joseph. Hmm. Now, Jeanette did a lovely job of sort of helping to bring that to our children last week. But kind of, can, can we be a bit more, now the children are gone, let's, let's talk about this with a little bit more reality. I mean, Matthew gives us indication of it. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Why was he going to divorce her quietly? Because she was pregnant and the baby wasn't his. The baby wasn't his. And in that time and in that culture, that was an incredible breach of of community standards would have resulted in enormous amount of rejection. I mean, and, and so Jesus, throughout his life, throughout his earthly life, would have had to face a little bit of whispering campaign. I mean, you think our, our, our president has it hard sometimes with the people who keep trying to do the birther thing, you know. Well, Jesus, the king of the universe, I mean, he had a birther story. And there were whispers. And there were words used. And they were very specific, particular words that would have been used about what, who Jesus was as a Baby born to a single mom without, I mean, not a married woman at that. Conceived out of wedlock. If you were king of the universe, you wanted to come in that way? Is that the doorway you'd choose? Come on, let's be honest. Born into an irregular family. We talked a little about this last week. But, you know, there's a whole lot in that genealogy that, you know, we could talk about. You could talk about Rahab the prostitute. How about that in your genealogy? Like that one? How about Jacob the cheat? Well, there's Judah the womanizer. David. King da even King David. How about King David, the adulterer and the murderer? Think about it. You're king of the universe. What kind of family and what kind of lineage would you like to walk in with? Is that who you want to be known as if you are known? And again, in Jewish, you know, you're going to be, it's not, you aren't born into the world in a vacuum. You're born into all of this. And so all of this is behind you. You're carrying it all with you. You're king of the universe. How's it going, people? How you feeling about this? Born with an ordinary name. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. 
there's been something about that name. Oh, yeah, we love that name. Name was, in, in, in that time and setting, Jesus, same name as Joshua. That was, like, very common. That would be like being named, what's the popular name now? I don't know. John, Jacob, you know? This would just be, you know, there was a whole lot of Jesuses, Joshua. You know, in the birth or na- you know, in the birthing books, it would have been one of the top names, okay, right up there at the top. Wouldn't have been unusual. Wouldn't have been like some name you've never heard of. You know, it wouldn't be totally unique. Like my, have I talked to you about my granddaughter lately? And her name. It's just an ordinary, but even here we get some hints because look at what it says in Matthew. You read right over it, but perhaps you forgot it and missed it already. Verse 23, you'll give birth to a son and they will call him. His name is Jesus, but they're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Oh. Now we're getting another hint. We're pulling the veil back a bit more. We're beginning to see something more about this ordinary name in this upside-down kingdom, this king who's coming into a barn in Bethlehem under kind of irregular birth circumstances to an irregular family with an ordinary name. But at least he was probably, I mean, he had to be. He was the king. He had to be the best-looking baby anywhere, right? I don't know. I don't know. I think he was born with ordinary looks. Born with ordinary looks. As it says to us in Isaiah 53 that he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He would not have made the cover of People magazine as the sexiest man alive. He wouldn't. There was no, you know... We've got to we've got to grapple with this because otherwise, otherwise, if we don't grapple with this, we're going to be turned upside down and around ourselves. We're gonna we're not going to really understand this upside down kingdom. But thankfully, I mean the one thing. Okay, again, you're coming as king. The one thing that he's got going as the king of the universe, is he's got an angel choir. Thank goodness for that. So he's got the angel choir. Oh, I love that song we sang. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. It was beautiful. Glory in the highest. Glory in the highest. Glory in the heart. 
And here's this choir singing it out. And they've got to sound incredible. But who are they singing to? Some shepherds over here. Here's where we really come into our understanding today of this treasuring the least because the choir announces the birth of the king of the universe first to the least. See, the shepherds were the last ones in sort of the societal ranks. They were the most ordinary, the lowest, you know, I mean, this was not the, you know, you, you didn't necessarily, you know, if you were really looking for your son or daughter to achieve, you weren't necessarily looking for them to become a shepherd. So here, the king of the universe. Now again, I don't know how you'd do it. Perhaps you'd want to clear your throat. (coughs) Attention, shoppers. Maybe you'd, you know, how would you get... How would you get the attention of the whole world? God came and got the attention of some shepherds in a field with a choir. Glorious choir. So if we're going to treasure the least, We've got to wrestle in our spirit and our hearts with this story of the upside-down kingdom. Because this goes against all of our conventions, just as human beings and by gum as Americans. So this story of the upside-down kingdom, and again, backing up to the treasuring the last and the story of God's sovereignty and the story of God's people and the story of God's mercy really becomes now the story of God's people of mercy because now it starts to become your and my story. And we've got some stuff we've got to deal with. Turn over to Matthew chapter 25, if you would. Starting at the beginning of Matthew, we're going to end in the end of Matthew. Right before the crucifixion and Jesus' teaching. He's giving a variety of teaching and parables, and he's talking about the end. He's talking about, as Dwayne brought up this morning, thank you, Dwayne, for bringing the story, and Jesus' second coming. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. He's talking about his second coming. In verse 31 of Matthew 25, he says, When the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and all of the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a, sheep separates, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. And I was sick and you looked after me. And I was in prison and you came to visit me. 
And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or in needing clothes and clothe you? And when did we see when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these friends of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those in his left apart from me, you who are cursed through the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And you reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but be righteous to eternal life. I don't know about you, but that's a fairly sobering story. So let me just very quickly unpack this for us as we close the message this morning. Mercy requires a proper perspective. Why I wanted to begin with the story of the upside down kingdom because this is the beginning of the story coming to us. And it says in Philippians 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. This, this is the whole birth story of Jesus, is already we're receiving hints in our lives that this looks different this kingdom thing that we are thinking about looks different than what we would have naturally thought about if we were thinking it up. So we are invited to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And the mindset of Christ Jesus was that he came as a servant. He didn't take advantage of all of the advantages that he could have taken as the king of the universe. Instead... He was willing to humble himself and lower himself and become like us. And if we're going to treasure the least, we too are going to need to have our mindset, our perspective recalibrated. Mercy requires personal presence. The word, I love this, this is from uh, the message, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Mercy requires more than just knowing about the least. It requires more than simply writing a check for the least. 
it actually requires personal presence. Mercy requires Jesus with skin on. You really can't do mercy well at a distance. You actually have to prepare food. You actually have to open up your house. You actually have to go and visit. Let's talk about that. It requires practical action. John 13, now that I know Jesus, this is the story when Jesus, Last Supper, he comes and he washes his disciples' feet for the night before. And he comes and he's with them. And he says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you very truly. I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. There is a conditionalness on this blessedness. It's if you do that. It means feed the hungry. Bring water to the thirsty. Invite the other, the stranger, the other person into your home. Give clothing to the naked. Spend time with sick people. Visit the imprisoned. Pastor Sam and I, he was, he was talking about something that he'd been um, reading and, and, and had been studying and discovered, you know, and, and I think we heard it here maybe a little bit in, I don't know if it was Jim last week in his story, but the church, when it was still sort of the outsider in the Roman Empire, one of the things that was so compelling about the church and made it so attractional, made it a place that people had to step. When the plague hit, and everybody who had the reason, anybody who could get out, got out. It was Christians who stayed and cared for the sick. It was Christians who didn't flee. And that's where hospitals and all of those things first came, was because of Christians. It was the Christians who, when the Romans, you know, because they had infanticide, so they would take, and there was a particular bridge and river, they would throw the babies into the river, and the Christians would be there with nets, pulling them out, taking them into their homes, caring for them, raising them. The church today could be known as a church who runs with mercy towards the need, whatever that need might be around us, would that not begin to change even the perception of the culture towards who we are as his people? It's the story it's the story of God's people of mercy. He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So Micah, verse 6-8, and James 1-27, the old and new agree that God's great concern is His concern for the least. And so this Advent, I believe the Lord is inviting us to treasure the least. Those who are vulnerable, those who are powerless, those who are marginalized. He is inviting us to adjust our perspective, to get personal, And to begin to reach out practically. And I simply want to invite you this season to begin to pay attention to how you, how the Lord might bring those who are the least across your path and invite you to treasure these precious ones. Can we stand together? We're going to sing a song that speaks of what Jesus has done when He came. He came down into darkness. He opened our eyes. And that's what we want our eyes to be open today. And once we've sung through this song completely, I'll give a benediction, but while we're singing this, if you'd like to come and you'd just like to present yourself to Him today in light of what He has done for us, if you just want to say, Lord, you know, we get to the chorus, it says, here I am to worship, here I am to bow down. If you just want to humble yourself before Him today in this place, I want to welcome you. Just open your hands if you would. Oh, Jesus, I kneel before you today. In humble recognition of your humility in coming to us as you did. Emmanuel, God with us. And also in recognition that You indeed are King of kings and Lord of lords, and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that You are the Christ, the Messiah, Lord and Master of all. And as we wait for that day, in the tension between the already and the not yet, that You are here and yet You are coming. Help us, Jesus, to treasure that which You treasure, the last and the least and the lost. As, Lord, we seek to always treasure You. And now I pray 
with hands open. I ask that you might be filled afresh today with the immeasurable love of God the Father, the irresistible mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Son, the inexhaustible strength, power, comfort, and hope of the Holy Spirit be with you and yours as you go from this house to yours, sent to make disciples of all nations. Go with the banner of His goodness and grace over your lives. Until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home, I pray that His love and mercy will continue to chase you down all the days of your life. Until we are with Him forever. In Jesus' name, go in His grace. Amen.